This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Surrogate Warfare, The Transformation of War in the 21st Century by Andreas Krieg and Jean-Marc Riccoli in 2019. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 3. Conceptualizing Surrogate Warfare at the beginning of the 21st century, the state appears to be under immense pressure to live up to its social contractarian foundations and to provide public security inclusively to its society, which, although becoming more transnational and heterogeneous in character, has an ever-growing need for it. The socially constructed conceptualizations of security have encompassed an increasing number of dimensions as sentiments of being secure and feeling secure have subjectively been defined on the basis of risks. At the same time, these postmodern risk societies live in an era when the management of risks is an exercise with little prospect of success amid new forms of terrorism, eroding state authority around the globe shaky financial markets, and the almost unrestricted transnational activities of drug cartels, human traffickers, and other criminal organizations. While the management of risks has become ever more difficult, societies place ever more demands on the state to deliver on their security needs. The failure to do so leads to the individual's and community's disenchantment with the system, political apathy at best, or rebellion and insurgency at the worst. The system has been defined by generations who have lived through the 20th century, where territoriality, boundaries, and sovereignty were relatively unchallenged concepts exclusively tied to the state. In the Western world, the populist likes of Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen, Geert Wilders, and Nigel Farage tried to purge the system from a seemingly globalized elite establishment through divisive narratives of fear-mongering in a desperate attempt to turn back time. In the developing world, where liberal institutions and discourse tend to be under more strain than in the developed world, the public lack of confidence in the system often only leaves a radical, violent solution, wrapped in religious or ethnic narratives, to changing the state of socio-political affairs. Thus, the state, whether the liberal or the illiberal, is under pressure to deliver public goods in forms of political, societal, economic, and most importantly, physical security, inclusively to its constituency, that is, the population at large. Since the establishment of the so-called Islamic State in 2014, terrorism has been perceived to be on the rise once again, most visibly in Europe and the Middle East. Whereas large-scale suicide bombings hit Middle Eastern cities on almost a daily basis, smaller-scale attacks in Europe have replaced the elusive sentiments of security on the continent with paranoia and phobia. With sociopaths and psychopaths jumping on the bandwagon of jihadist terrorism, societies in Europe have to get used to a new security environment amid a recent financial crisis and a new one on the horizon. Ungoverned spaces in the heart of the Middle East and North Africa producing radical ideology, migrants, and fighters, and an ostensibly conventional threat emanating from Moscow against territories the West has come to accept on its own. All this while the U.S. has arguably turned its attention toward the Pacific amid a domestic economic cooldown and growing cyber threats from China, Russia, and Iran. The developing world of weak states, failing states, and failed states has often surrendered before the globalized security challenges. 
concepts of effective sovereignty and good governance are utopian ideals that the state in the developing world has never lived up to, neither in the 19th nor in the 20th centuries, partially also because they have been imposed upon them by the West at the expense of more effective traditional means of socio-political organization. Without evoking the global doomsday, it seems that for many the security challenges today appear to be too hard to manage and that the state is too overburdened to deliver on its social contractarian duties. Despite the drop in public trust in the state as the authority to deliver public goods, most notably security, the state nonetheless ironically remains the authority most individuals turn to, since alternatives to the state are so far only supplementary, not substitutionary. Consequently, managing risks confronts the state strategically with dilemmas. First, the state faces the dilemma of mitigating risks that are widely considered to be too negligible to legitimize going to war while still being too tangible to ignore. As Ulrich Beck asserts, for states in the 21st century risk environment, the, quote, political costs of omission are higher than the political costs of overreaction, end quote. Second, the state has to deal with the dilemma of living up to the social contractarian duty to care to its citizens, while also satisfying the cosmopolitan demands of providing for the security of communities overseas. Although both are arguably two sides of the same coin, the humanitarian aspect of particularly liberal states' foreign and security policy is something that in times of casualty and war aversion does not automatically justify the expense of soldiers and resources for a humanitarian war. As the migrant crisis in Europe exemplifies, the contraction of the welfare state in the West negatively impacts the willingness of its main benefactors at home to see their state function as a global welfare state. When the mitigation of risks forces the state to use coercion, the state is forced to respond globally, instantly, and simultaneously. The everywhere war of the 21st century requires reach, speed, flexibility, capacity, and diverse socio-cultural awareness in an effort to achieve operational effectiveness in the variety of operational environments. T.E. Lawrence's maxim, quote, we should use the smallest force in the quickest time at the farthest place, end quote, becomes the guidance in the operational planning processes of the new millennium. Reading about Lawrence's own experience as the British liaison with the Arab tribes in their struggle for independence during World War I seems to be a good preparation for war in the 21st century. Lawrence's strategy allowed the British to respond quickly with a small footprint, employing local forces that were uniquely qualified to operate in their own indigenous, highly complex operating environment, all with the legitimacy of the local population. The experience of Lawrence Arabia that he outlined in his magnum opus, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, has become the conceptual foundation for surrogate warfare in the 21st century, a mode of war, although not revolutionary in itself, that appears at first sight to be the silver bullet for the state to deal with the many strategic and operational challenges it faces in this new age. The Concept of War by Surrogate The externalization, partially or wholly, of the strategic, operational, and tactical burden of war to human or technological surrogates with the principal intent of minimizing the patron's own burden of war has been rediscovered by the state faced with the globalized, privatized, securitized, and mediatized wars of the 21st century. Surrogate warfare is thereby more than just the continuation of a historic tradition to employ auxiliaries, 
force multipliers, or proxies in an effort to fight wars cheaply, clandestinely, or more effectively. Surrogate warfare is the continuation of politics by other means in an area when the state is as a socio-political complex has to redefine its role as a communal security provider amid a globalized context against intangible threats in competition with non-state actors, under the constant surveillance of a global public sphere, and under the domestic pressure of fiscal austerity and glowing, growing welfare expenditure. As such, the uniqueness of surrogate warfare lies not so much in the departure from conventional Trinitarian means of warfare, but in its nature as a non-Trinitarian socio-political phenomenon. The transformation of sociopolitics have not only redefined the burden of warfare, but with it also the process of how postmodern states organize and apply violence. Liberal and illiberal states, weak and powerful ones, have discovered more ways and means to substitute or supplement their own citizen soldiers for a variety of different reasons. The, burden, the definition of the burden of warfare, and therefore the motivations for delegation, have become ever so complex amid the sociopolitical upheavals. The Burden of Warfare The management of scarce resources, the minimization of costs amid a maximization of capability and capacity has been a constant challenge for warring parties throughout history. But the weakest and the strongest powers of their time have consequently tried to keep the burden of war to a minimum. Therefore, the burden of war does not exclusively relate to costs incurred by the military, but the totality of costs incurred by all three parts of the classic trinity. Historically, the burden of war has been limited to the human and financial costs of war that were incurred by the belligerents of the time, most notably the aristocratic leaders of states and empires employing their funds to raise militaries in an effort to further their own interests. In the pre-1789 world, these sovereigns owed little justification to the people they ruled over as the funds invested were considered their private wealth, and the troops killed were often contract soldiers paid for their service. Historical exceptions might be the polis in ancient Greece or the Roman Republic, in which the costs of war were monitored by a privileged elite in the Ecclesia and Senate, respectively. The idea of warfare, however, as, as organized violence of the masses, was still far from reality at that time. Nonetheless, the military burden was externalized, most commonly in an effort to augment troop capacity and capability. The lack of sufficient manpower with the necessary skill or local knowledge was the main driver for nation-states, empires, and colonial powers to use surrogates in the stabilization and administration of large territories and populations. Barbarian surrogates helped Alexander the Great to staff his naval power, allowed Carthage to enhance the mobility of its forces, and enabled the Romans to conquer the inaccessible lands of Germania using the local knowledge of tribal surrogates. Surrogates allowed the British to create an empire on which the sun never set. Surrogates granted a relatively small island nation the required capacity, both in terms of numbers and expertise, that was required to build the largest empire in world history. Thus, before society became the central component of political and military affairs with the French Revolution, surrogacy was a means to minimize the military and financial burden of war for state and military. The military burden of war, in this respect, referred to the human and material costs borne by the combatants. The fundamental, socio-political upheaval that followed the French Revolution changed the distribution of the burden of warfare from the duality of state and military to something Klaus Fitz conceptualized as a trinity, with society as its principle. Society became not only the primary socio-political actor, but also the main bearer of the burden of war.
Since the early 19th century, war has no longer been just an elite activity mobilizing limited resources, but also total war. The People's Wars brought with it the complete mobilization of a society's resources. The levy en masse of the post-1789 years had opened up new opportunities for the state to wage wars that would affect not only an exclusive class of military professionals, but also an entire socio-political apparatus, arming the people, raising militias, and utilizing on a large scale society's human and economic resources, all for the total destruction of the enemy's military state and society. As Clausewitz asserted and Moltke the Younger reasserted, quote, now that governments have become conscious of these resources, we cannot expect them to remain unused in the future, whether the war is fought in self-defense or in order to satisfy intense ambition. Obviously, wars waged by both sides to the full extent of their national strength must be conducted on different principles from wars in which policy was based on the comparative size of the regular armies." End quote. The total sacrifice and total destruction of the nation were new maxims made possible by the technological advancements of the Industrial Revolution and legitimized by the social Darwinist narratives of nationalism. The classical wars of the 19th and 20th centuries were planned and often executed either in expectation or with the ambition of total destruction. The human burden of war was no longer just a variable on the battlefield, but a matter of course amid the civilian population. While civilian infrastructure was deliberately targeted and concepts of collateral damage conveniently redefined, public life in wartime changed dramatically, even when, as was the case in Germany in World War I, the battlefields were hundreds of miles away from the border. With millions of men called on for duty, women had to take their positions on the home front. Although thousands cheered during World War II when Joseph Goebbels cynically asked the audience in his famous Sports Palast speech in February 1943 whether it would support a total war, the two years to follow painfully demonstrated to what extent mankind and his war machines were able to depredate. The burden did not only fall on the military, but also equally on states and their societies. Human and financial costs were sacrifices expected to be made by governments, citizens, and citizen soldiers for the survival of the nation or its aggrandizement. In this context, the employment of surrogates for war was a phenomenon on the fringes of colonial war as the required capacity and capability for national defense could be raised domestically through the vast resources of the nation. By the mid-20th century, the idea of the total war consuming all of society's resources had become less attractive because of the devastating experience of World War II, as well as the global apocalypse promised by a nuclear confrontation between the two superpowers. Although armed conflict during the Cold War arguably escalated only on the global periphery, the global struggle for ideological hegemony was far from nonviolent. The doomsday scenario of mutually assured destruction, MAD, brought with it as a potential cost of war the extermination of civilization, generating the ultimate burden on society, a burden that neither of the superpowers were willing to put on its society. The human and financial costs of nuclear war would have been disastrous and therefore had to be avoided at all costs. Nonetheless, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union felt the urge to advance their interests through the management of violence. Strategic surrogates in the form of proxies were assigned to more or less autonomously protect the superpower's interests overseas, providing the sponsor or patron with a degree of plausible deniability. 
deniability, and ultimately legitimacy had become motivations in surrogate warfare that were irrelevant to the belligerent empires of history. Public scrutiny, whether domestically, internationally, or locally, is a factor that throughout the 20th century became more important than capacity and capability. With war unfolding increasingly in the public sphere since the 19th century, as the armies became staffed with citizen soldiers, a new burden became apparent, the political burden of war on the state having to justify its actions toward its society at home and the international community, as well as increasingly to locals in the theater. The evolution of the media since the 19th century as the public voice of the bourgeois and later of the masses created a forum in which citizens can interact and communicate to form public opinion with little or no interference of the state. With it developed a public sense of responsibility over socio-political affairs, even if not as encompassing as in liberal democracies. The state no longer held a monopoly over socio-political affairs, but had to enter into dialogue with the public, whether directly via the ballot box or indirectly via the growing public sphere. Particularly, the mass broadcast of media of the 20th century created an environment of public awareness that became ever more difficult to control by the state. The internet and social media finally transformed the state from a controlling authority to a controlled authority in a mediatized world. Even the most authoritarian and repressive regimes still have to engage in shaping public perceptions, above all, in regard to high politics of, for of foreign and security policy. For example, Russia, China, and Saudi Arabia, three arguably illiberal authoritarian states, all invest heavily in strategic communication to keep the public's perception about the government's policies and decisions in the realm of war. As the nation became the main protagonist in war, bearing the main burden financially and in terms of human costs, the public in parallel also assumed more control over the investment of the nation's resources. Waging war was now also a matter of discourse between state in public, rather than purely a matter of applying kinetic force on the battlefield. Since the Clausewitzian characterization of war as an act of violence to compel our enemy to do our will is no longer confined to the physical battle space or the application of physical force, winning the will of the people has become a task of shaping perception, first domestically, then internationally, and in the information age of the 21st century, also locally. Carson F. Rowenfelt argues that power now rests on legitimacy. Communication has replaced force as the decisive means of in power politics. Thus, since the Cold War, states and other belligerent parties operate in a realm of public scrutiny where global, domestic, and local legitimacy are variables that can decide a war. The resulting subjectivity of defeat and victory requires the warring party to address not only questions of capacity and capability, but also questions of legitimacy. During the Cold War, the superpowers primarily required deniability in order to avoid a doomsday scenario. Nonetheless, apart from deniability, it was important to communicate strategic objectives credibly, not just to the adversary on the other side of the Iron Curtain, but also more importantly to electorates at home. The clash of ideologies in the propaganda apparatuses in East and West had brought with it a clash of narratives on the battlefield. The kinetic effects in the American surrogate war in Vietnam proved to be inferior to the disruptive discourse developed locally by the Viet Cong and their allies and broadcast by the media. The massive war machinery of the American superpower failed to shape people's changing opinions and reflections on war and military power. 
the American narrative of a legitimate war was undermined by the inability of its archaically thinking military to take into account the most important of the Trinitarian components of war, the passions of the people. In the 20th century, the passions of the people, public demands, and expectations have grown into centers of gravity for military action. The reason is that the political burden of war emanating from public scrutiny pressures the political leadership of liberal and authoritarian states alike to carefully weigh the urgency of a crisis against the human and financial costs on society and military. The cost-benefit analysis underlying the decision to resort to war today is the inherent feature in the political decision-making about war and peace in the information age. The human and financial burdens of war can no longer be hidden from the public eye. The costs of war burden society, the state, and the military, not just during conflict, but also even before and after war. Resources that are invested in the armed forces and the preparation of war deprive other public services of funding. The maintenance of armed forces is one of the most resource-demanding agendas on a government's budget. According to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, in 2013, the Middle East, Eastern Europe, North Africa, and South Asia spent more on the military than on public health care. In the European Union, although defense expenditures represented 1.4% of the GDP in 2015, compared to 19.2% for public welfare, the political sensitivity of defense spending is very high and often considered as a direct competitor to the latter. Hence, the investments that go into the military weigh on society both in terms of financial and human costs. While a considerable share of public wealth is invested into the capability and capacity of the armed forces in anticipation of the next war, much more is invested when a nation actually goes to war. The public awareness of these human and financial costs creates a burden on political leaders to justify investments in the armed forces, their deployment overseas, the means they employ, and the damage they cause. Especially in the Western world, societies have taken for granted living within an almost bulletproof bubble of security, while the rest of the world becomes a battlefield of wars over resources, sectarian or religious affiliation, and power. Communal security has become a sacred good taken for granted in societies that have not experienced major war since 1945. The end of the Cold War in the 1990s additionally encouraged the enthusiasm that a Pax Americana was possible when, in a new world order, militaries would be used to deliver humanitarian goods to people in need. The post-9-11 disenchantment with this illusion confronted governments with the intractable problem of fighting zero-casualty wars at low financial costs with downsized militaries that would deploy everywhere, anytime against enemies that were intangible and not confined to a distinct locality. Accordingly, the globalized wars of the late 20th and early 21st centuries exacerbated the political burden of war that is borne by policymakers. With a public antagonism and antipathy toward conflict and organized violence, policymakers have to manage the political costs of armed conflict as the postmodern burden of war. That is to say, the risks arising from casualties by citizen soldiers in endless wars with limited obvious benefits for society at home are incurred by the state as an authority under international, domestic, and local scrutiny. Internationally, partners, allies, and adversaries want to ensure that the state's military activities conform to international law and norms. 
Domestically, public opinion and, where applicable, a critical electorate want to ensure that sacrifices, whether financial or human, are not made in vain in military operations that only render negligible benefits. Locally, states are unfavorably eyeballed by at least parts of a populace that potentially perceives foreign military intervention to be a self-interested move to further alien interests at the costs of locals. Even in illiberal states, the diffusion of and access to information provide local communities with alternative perspectives to the one promoted by the state unless the latter curtails the reach and depth of local internet, as is the case in North Korea. Hence, the state's exposure to political risks when employing violence leaves the state, liberal and illiberal, as the one entity that is the most severely affected by the burden of war. The externalization of this burden to surrogates has therefore become a state priority when fighting neo-Trinitarian wars. The postmodern resurgence of surrogate wars was a product of fundamental socio-political change. The list of different forms of surrogacy is long, as states constantly invent new means to externalize the burden of war to strategic, operational, or tactical human or technological surrogates. Removing the burden of war from the public eye for liberal and non-liberal socio-political authorities has become a priority in strategic and operational planning processes of the 21st century, whereby the links between patron and surrogate become ever blurrier the further the surrogate is removed from the patron's authority. Surrogate warfare effectively disrupts the Trinitarian bonds that the classical theorists of war have defined as fundamental for the management of organized violence. The classical model of Trinitarian war no longer applies, causing the traditional authority, the state, to rethink the organization and orchestration of violence so as to be able to continue to coercively determine the outcome of conflicts amid a globalized, transnational environment of anarchy. Toward a model of the concept, surrogate warfare in many ways appears to be the answer to the complexities of the geostrategic, operational, and tactical environments in which globalized conflicts are situated. Sociopolitical actors, both states and non-state actors, have a raison d'etre that revolves around the protection of security interests of particular individuals or groups of people, traditionally the protection of security interests of an entire community. In a neo-Trinitarian world, socio-political affairs are organized not exclusively by states, but by alternative socio-political authorities as well, such as militias, insurgency and rebel groups, warlords and criminal organizations. They sometimes coexist with the state as a complementary entity, but more often than not, these alternative authorities compete with the state for legitimacy and control over people and territory. Non-state socio-political entities tend to provide for more tangible local security needs of the communities they preside over than states, since the communities are smaller and the bond between community and authority is mostly forged through conflict vis-a-vis -a, -vis a more or less rigidly defined threat. Consequently, the very raison d'etre of the authority is then linked to the existence of a tangible threat. Rebel groups in the Middle East, insurgency groups in Latin America, warlords in Africa, and criminal organizations in Central America all control territory and people, and all are at war either with other non-state actors or with state authorities. Their existence is defined by the struggle they lead and against the deliberate conceptualization of the other, that is, the enemy. The only scrutiny these alternative socio-political authorities face is from within the relatively small communities they rule over. 
States in the developed and developing world, on the contrary, generally do not understand themselves as merely managers of violence against a clearly defined other. The maintenance of security for states is a far more complex undertaking in the realms of social, political, economic, and physical security, involving a range of different instruments to provide for these public goods. War as the management of organized violence is just one vehicle to provide one aspect of security for communities usually more diverse than those administered by alternative socio-political authorities such as ISIS, Hezbollah, or the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, known as FARC or FARC. As the sole rights holders in the international system under international law, states are under tight scrutiny not just domestically but also internationally and locally. Therefore, the state is providing a far more complex set of security functions and operates in a far more comprehensive system of checks and balances, a transnational system involving not only other peers, but also a growing number of non-state actors, media organizations, and private entities constraining the state in the 21st century. The state has the nominal privilege of sovereignty, territoriality, and recognition on the premise of its compliance with international law, norms, and values, all of which remain subjective and locally constructed. Waging war through organized violence then becomes a far more delicate endeavor for the state, especially in the 21st century. In a globalized world where activities are more transnational than international, where security providers are increasingly private actors, where insecurities emanate from non-state entities, and where threat mitigation has become a matter of risk management, conflict erupts if anywhere, directly or indirectly affect the most remote localities across borders, and can be solved only through a mix of violent and nonviolent means. Transnational conflicts require the state to be ready to take military action anywhere at short notice in a multidimensional battle space along a linear front for an indefinite period of time. All that in consideration of international, domestic, and local public opinion. Here, the conventional Trinitarian concept of society, state, and soldier, conceived to provide security as a public good against conventional threats to state and nation, appears to be out of sync with the security demands rising from neo-Trinitarian conflict. At first sight, surrogate warfare appears to be the panacea of the state's struggle to coercively shape the outcomes of these transnational conflicts around the globe instantly, simultaneously, and at times, preemptively. What surrogate warfare allows the state to do is to disintegrate, disintegrate the Trinitarian civil-military relations between society, state, and soldier. With society as the principle, any state, even the non-liberal authoritarian state, has a security responsibility toward its people who expects to be protected from internal and external threats. The state's failure to deliver effectively undermines Weber's idea of the state's monopoly on violence. Individuals living under a socio-political authority concede their natural right to defend their lives through violence only when the state guarantees law and order. Therefore, in the developed world, law and order mean not only the absence of anarchy, but the absence of an idealist sense of absolute security, something the state in the globalized world finds ever more difficult to provide. In the developed world, the paradox is that, on the one hand, the state is expected to maintain unprecedented levels of security through the global mitigation of risks, yet, on the other hand, without resorting to the traditional means of military force. That is to say, the public in the developed world expects more security with fewer major combat operations. 
Consequently, particularly the Western developed state needs to provide security to societies that are spoiled by the absence of major war since 1945 and trapped in the illusion that the victory of the Cold War must mean the end of all wars. The domestic public pressure to evade the horrors of war, both for civilian populations locally and military personnel at home, has created an aversion within Western political and military leaderships to the traditional military operation as an effort to employ all of society's resources in organized violence. Once on the public radar, using armed force and managing global risks exposes a government to political risks arising from public expectations about military success as well as low casualty figures. This is particularly true when the threats and risks to be engaged are perceived as less than vital amid potentially preemptive operations. Here, all states need to engage in the battle of discourses and narratives. Risks are effectively created on the basis of subjective securitization, namely the construction of a public perception of risk for which it might be more or less worth fighting for. Nonetheless, as states, both liberal and illiberal, lose the monopoly over information, the volume and frequency of public discourse becomes less and less manageable in the information age. Public perceptions of risk and threat are therefore subject to increased polarization from internal and external actors. Amid this environment of a polarized public unwilling or only partially willing to actively engage in organized violence against peripheral threats, it becomes difficult for the state to evoke social contractarian narratives of national security and survival. The Iraq War in 2003 and the public debates in the Western world preceding it are a great example of the difficulty for the developed state to lead major combat operations when publics are unwilling to make social contractarian resources available. Hence, when war is not about national survival, societies are unwilling to accept the burden of war, pressuring the state to use means other than the citizen-soldier to achieve strategic objectives. In the developed world, the state's dilemma arises from having to contain intangible risks overseas using public military resources that are reserved for matters of national defense. The state consequently either finds a way to securitize issues effectively as matters of national security, or finds a way to cut the connection between the inevitable horrors of war overseas and the benign reality of public life at home particularly when the horrors of war are as intimate as a citizen soldier's death. While the oversaturation of media coverage makes it impossible to turn a blind eye to human suffering in conflict, suffering remains a relatively abstract concept as long as there is no direct emotional relationship between the public and those fighting overseas. Effectively, the emotional civil-military bond that Huntington describes in his The Soldier and the State needs to be disrupted. According to Huntington, the citizen-soldier as a military professional serves the national security objectives dictated by society and framed by the state. With society as the soldier's principle under the social contract, society develops an emotional bond to the soldier as an individual willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice in the management of violence for socially approved purposes that are limited to public security. As Huntington's civil-military setup is conceptualized through the lens of the social contract, security is often defined in relation to the tangible threats to national survival of the 19th and 20th centuries. 
Therefore, because of the fundamental idea of the soldier as a public servant providing security as a public good, civil-military relations tend to focus on the submission of the management of violence to society and state, whereby the latter is an agent of society. This concept of civil-military relations, once hailed as the liberal solution to the inherent civil-military dilemma of creating a military powerful enough to protect the public while contained enough to submit to civilian control, appears to be redundant in the age of transnational conflict. Apart from merely adopting Huntington's argument for an augmented professionalization of armed forces, in the new era of conflict, an increased separation and divergence between society and the management of violence becomes necessary. This separation provides the state with the ability to act preemptively under a cloak of discretion outside direct public oversight. Amid the rising public awareness and scrutiny of the 21st century, developed and undeveloped states see themselves confronted with a need to detach coercion from public scrutiny, primarily from the radar of society at home. Surrogate warfare allows the state to disconnect the burden of war from domestic scrutiny, relieving governments from the political costs of using force in an environment of uncertainty, unpredictability, and intangibility of threat. What happens in surrogate warfare is the rationalization of war, namely a fundamental break with the classical thinking of war as the management of violence empowered by the passions of the people. In the strategic thinking of the 19th century, warfare could no longer be an endeavor separated from the passions of the people. Goltz's Volk in Waffen and Ludendorff's Der Total Krieg are testimonies to the notion of the total submission of socio-political affairs to the war effort. Moltke saw the masses and their hunger for war as a means of strategic importance that could not just legitimize war, but also help provide the resources necessary for the industrialized mass slaughter all powers steered toward in the run-up to World War I. Surrogate warfare breaks with this tradition. As wars are no longer fought primarily by nation-states for national ideologies in defense of national interests, the passions of the people are often just a mere obstacle to effective achievement of military objectives on the battlefield. The surrogate helps to divorce military affairs from public sentiments of casualty and war sensitivity because he, or she, or it, has no emotional bond to the trinity. The surrogate brings violence to bear where necessary without causing negative repercussions for the patron that employs him, as long as the link between patron and surrogate remains under the cloak of plausible deniability and discretion. From the patron's point of view, surrogate warfare is the next evolutionary step from the professionalization of violence in the 20th century, away from the people's wars of the 19th century. Basil Little's Hart's appeal for a more professional approach in the management of violence after World War I provides the blueprint for a more rational and limited approach to military conflict resolution. The professional citizen soldier remains in the barracks leading a life apart from lay people. Nonetheless, he or she remains a member of the public as its Trinitarian security provider. The surrogate, however, is not a public servant, with direct emotional ties to the patron's society. The only link the surrogate maintains to the, to the sponsor is through the state that either pays, trains, or directs him. In doing so, surrogate warfare looks like a return to warfare amid the socio-political realities of the pre-1972 years, in which the cabinet's krieg, or cabinet wars, were raged by the aristocracy and their cabinets for their own private interests. 
The cabinet wars of the medieval and early modern ages had been conducted in order to secure dynastic interests and had been fought with the aid of mercenary armies led by aristocratic officers, largely to the exclusion of the civilian population. For the classic, classical military thinkers of the 19th century, cabinet wars were a matter of the past, with the bourgeois and the working class controlling an ever-growing share of public life outside the regulation of the state. Despite the absence of liberal democracy, the French Revolution brought with it a widespread socio-political emancipation of the masses in the Western world that eventually shaped the way states pursued wars. Moltke had to acknowledge the power of the public in disrupting the military's conduct of war after the Paris insurgency of 1871 during the German siege. As a member of the Old Guard, Moltke nonetheless found cabinet wars to be more desirable because they allowed conflicts of political interests to be resolved rationally by means of raw military force, avoiding the dangers of unlimited total war. Surrogate warfare cancels the passions of the patron's people from the Trinitarian equation that Clausewitz introduced. The patron is able to wage war with its burden being externalized to an agent that, though directly or indirectly answering to the patron, has no emotional or covenantal ties to the patron's society. Quite on the contrary, in case of human surrogates, the surrogate might have covenantal ties to the civilian population on the ground. Thus, in terms of legitimacy, the human surrogate often has more communal legitimacy locally than domestically in the sponsor's society. For example, the Syrian Democratic Forces, SDF, as a surrogate of the United States in Syria, provide the U.S. with a means to wage war overseas with an agent that has more legitimacy locally in Syria than domestically in America. This externalization of the burden of war makes wars illiberal in the Western sense, owing to the democratic deficit that emerges from the disconnect of the people at home and the surrogate operating overseas. Looking at drone warfare as a typical form of surrogate warfare, John Keg and Sarah Krebs illustrate how the distancing between the public and the executive agent creates a vacuum within the liberal system of popular checks and balances. Quote, by distancing citizens, from the personal and financial risks of war, modern warfare, and drone warfare in particular, gives individuals little incentive to challenge their leaders on the conduct of war. End quote. This lack of popular checks and balances is exacerbated by the fact that coercive power in the protection of global rather than public goods becomes a transnational, multi-agency effort, whereby surrogates of all shapes and forms conduct wars with often limited oversight and sometimes even limited overlap of interests between surrogates and patrons. The key challenge for patrons, particularly those aspiring to democratic governance, is to ensure that the various agents remain somehow in accord with the collective good they intend to achieve. The security assemblages that develop through the multidimensionality of geostrategic conflict environments are being extended through the widespread infusion of surrogates into the conflict zone, by liberal and illiberal patrons alike. The responsibility over and burden of war becomes pluralized to an extent that public oversight becomes an almost impossible task. By deputizing core and niche military functions to human and technological surrogates, particularly Western patrons infringe on principles of public accountability, transparency, and participation that ought to be a hurdle to the use of violence. 
Without evoking Immanuel Kant's idealist tendencies from his democratic peace theory, surrogate warfare facilitates the resort to violence, something that in the post-World War II, Weltanschauung remains frowned on. The reason is that the externalization of the burden of war undermines public accountability, increasing the state's executive power to use violence overseas without ever having to fully disclose the strategic or operational costs. As John D. Michaels argues in reference to PMSCs, a preferred surrogate in 21st century warfare, the externalization of the burden of war to commercial security providers, quote, permits the executive to carry out military policy unilaterally, and it circumvents primary avenues through which the people are informed and blocks off primary channels through which the people can register their approval or voice their misgivings. From a normative liberal point of view, the externalization of the burden of war to surrogates constitutes a problem. From the point of view of the state having to maintain ever higher levels of security through the management of risks globally while minimizing the burden of war for the public and for itself, surrogate warfare provides an apparent panacea, a way out of the dilemmas of the everywhere war. Having to react to potential threats preemptively across the globe before they can really capitalize instantly and at short notice requires states an increased readiness to use coercive power even if just in a limited capability. The everywhere war is a simmering war over an indefinite period of time, which at least for the patron is not a total war. Dispersion rather than concentration of forces makes it imperative to incorporate all means of disruption and destruction available, particularly the non-Trinitarian ones. The democratic deficit of surrogate warfare is its greatest appeal to the states waging it, as it allows for the rational achievement of, of objectives with no or only limited scrutiny from the public. Wars can be waged indirectly without having to ask for permission and without having to mobilize huge conventional forces of citizens in uniform. The surrogate executes a more sober and rational strategy, often planned and conceived by technocrats who have few direct emotional bonds to the surrogate and the objectives to be achieved. Surrogate warfare, then, is very much a neo-Trinitarian warfare waged by the state as a Trinitarian organization, outside its Trinitarian responsibilities and accountabilities. Still, at least the human surrogate retains bonds to an alternative authority and community locally. While Germany's indirect reliance on the Peshmerga in Iraq to fight against ISIS made a Peshmerga a non-Trinitarian agent for the German government, the Peshmerga nonetheless retained Trinitarian bonds to its local population and the authority of the Kurdistan regional government. In an environment where non-state and non-Trinitarian actors determine outcomes on the battlefield and shape diplomatic efforts of conflict resolution, surrogate warfare is part of the state's effort to remain relevant. Beyond the neo-Trinitarian aspect of surrogate warfare, the deputation of warfighting to surrogates overseas also provides the patron of plausible deniability toward the international community. As the direct forceful intervention into a sovereign state is illegal under international law, particularly states see opportunity in surrogate warfare to coercively influence conflict outcomes without taking the risks of being held accountable by peers. It also offers the state a cover of deniability in the eyes of the international community to act preemptively, something that both legally and morally constitutes a violation of international norms. 
as stated above, in the traditional proxy wars of the Cold War, the aspect of deniability has been the most important motivator for the superpowers to shape conflict outcomes without risking a direct military confrontation with the ideological other. The proxy wars of the Cold War as types of surrogate wars, defined as, quote, an international conflict between two foreign powers fought out on the soil of a third country, using some or all of that country's manpower, resources, and territory as means for achieving preponderantly foreign goals and foreign strategies, end quote, revolved primarily around the aspect of deniability. In the age of social media, where the state's activities are under heightened scrutiny, discretion has become the new deniability. When partners, allies, and adversaries are increasingly sensitive to the activities of peers while the global public sphere exposes any form of foreign intervention, surrogate warfare allows the patron to create physical distance between strategic decision makers, namely the activators, and the surrogate as executors. Consider, for example, Russia's involvement in Ukraine since 2014. Whereas the separatist strategy in Ukraine is dictated by Moscow, the operational execution is in all likelihood helped by Russian PMSCs acting as force multipliers for pro-Russian secessionists. In parallel, Moscow prepared the ground by shaping the domestic and international narratives of the Ukraine crisis through alternative facts propagated by social media trolls and bots, human and technological surrogates, respectively. Despite the fact that the West blames Russia for its support of the pro-Russian separatists, little hard evidence could be provided about the link between Russian strategic planning and the operations of unmarked troops in eastern Ukraine and Crimea. In the new global wars, discretion becomes a key factor not just to avoid negative repercussions from adversaries, but also to minimize the reputational risks in the public global sphere. Discretion, however, is not just a factor for states but also non-state actors at the other end of the patron-surrogate relationship. The surrogate, although in need of support from a sponsor, might not want to publicize a sometimes uncomfortable relationship, something that applies to various U.S. surrogates in the Middle East, where America is regarded unfavorably by many. Again, in the public sphere where the clash of narratives and discourses can generate effects that are just as disruptive as kinetic effects, patrons and surrogates alike are forced to discreetly cover up their strategic and operational relationships. Thus, the major difference between the surrogate wars of pre-modernity and those of post-modernity is the socio-political context that drives a patron's motivation to externalize the burden of warfare. This is what a look at the motivations of patrons in the 21st century warfare reveals. Motivations for Surrogate Warfare When discussing the motivations for surrogate warfare, one is quickly tempted to look at the reasons for these wars to erupt. However, the question about motivations is narrower than that. It is about why patrons decide to externalize the burden of warfare to a substitute instead of employing their own citizens as soldiers. Much more, what determines the propensity of patrons to use surrogates over their own military? This question is answered differently today than in antiquity or the Renaissance. Nonetheless, regardless of the era, the decision of a patron to employ surrogates is motivated by a set of factors that have remained unchanged. What has changed is merely the degree to which these factors are prioritized and relate to each other in globalized, privatized, securitized, and mediatized wars. 
All these factors are interrelated and rarely shape a patron's decision independently from each other. For purely illustrative purposes, these factors can be displayed as part of a function to demonstrate the linkage between them. Urgency minus costs minus capability plus deniability plus legitimacy equals propensity to use surrogates. Over the course of history, the most important motivator to outsource the burden of warfare has been the patron's lack or insufficiency of capability. Before the 19th century, the non-Trinitarian wars of the pre-modern era did not enable the rulers to unrestrictedly exploit the nation's resources for war, that is, without skilled citizens as soldiers and the lack of funds to sustain a standing army, rulers had to source capability externally. The factor capability compromises capacity, that is, the number of troops available, as well as skills and expertise of the troops. Particularly, the empires of history employed auxiliaries and local forces in an effort to conquer and administer territories that were far away from the metropolitan mainland. Puppet states, barbarian forces, or colonial volunteers allowed imperial patrons to maintain the security of their borders. Apart from the lack of pure numbers of people to fill in and file, patrons also required surrogates to provide niche capabilities and special expertise. Auxiliaries were more than just force multipliers. They provided cavalry skills to patrons who were lacking. They mastered technology that the patrons' troops could not, such as archery or slinging. They possessed local knowledge of people and terrain, a huge operational advantage to patrons unfamiliar with the operational environment. They were seafarers, helping traditional land powers to develop a naval capability. But even traditional naval powers, such as Britain, long relied on auxiliary forces and privateers to bear the burden of war at sea on its behalf. Today, capacity and capability remain important factors in the decision of patrons to employ surrogates. PMSCs can augment troop levels by helping the contracting state to circumvent the effects of capping, whereby the legislature places a limit on contingent sizes on expeditionary operations. Contractors provide services that might not be military core functions, but provide all support roles other than warfighting, which frees thousands of uniformed personnel to directly engage in hostilities. Apart from that, contractors deliver niche capabilities in support of complex, technology-intense operations that require skill sets that are not abundantly available in the armed forces. At times, entire states can provide niche capabilities in the framework of an alliance or a coalition. When the patron of the early 21st century requires local knowledge of the physical and cultural terrain of the operating environment, locals can either be hired as liaison contractors embedded in the patron's armed forces or as local vigilante groups and militias. Owing to the fact that local forces are part of the local fabric, they can generate legitimacy in the eyes of the local population and authenticity in terms of language and ethnicity. Thus, local surrogates provide essential capabilities to counterinsurgents operating overseas. In Afghanistan and Iraq after 2003, the U.S.-led military coalitions owed much of their humble success to their counterinsurgency operations to local surrogate forces that functioned as a link between patron and local population, namely their strategic center of gravity. Plus, local surrogates can provide capacity and capability at short notice, allowing the patron to mobilize quickly and bring force to bear, a considerable advantage over conventional militaries, which require weeks, sometimes months, to mobilize and deploy. The backbone of the U.S. military operation against the Taliban regime of Afghanistan after 9-11 was tribal surrogates, predominantly from the Northern Alliance 
under the control of Abdul Rashid Dostam, an Uzbek war warlord. With a limited footprint on the ground, U.S. SOF were able to establish communication links between operational headquarters and tribal surrogates. This surrogate operation was in full swing by October 7, 2001, demonstrating the quick response capability that local surrogates can provide to patrons eager to swiftly stage a military operation. In the late 19th and early 21st centuries, it became considerably easy to translate financial wealth into military capability. The more capital-intensive the patron's strategic decision-making process, the easier for the patron to substitute capital for labor, namely to pay for human or technological surrogates. This factor becomes particularly important in reference to small states that are well-endowed financially but lack human capital, the most prominent examples being the tribally-based monarchies of the Persian Gulf. The militaries of the states constituting the GCC are widely staffed with foreigners, contractors, mercenaries, and seconded soldiers, all categories of surrogates that are not mutually exclusive. The small states of the Gulf, Bahrain, Qatar, the UAE, Kuwait, and Oman, but also the larger kingdom of Saudi Arabia, earned huge rents from their hydrocarbon sector but do not possess sufficient manpower skilled or willing enough to join their armed forces. In the GCC, foreign surrogates in the armed forces tended to come from Pakistan, from Sudan, and other Arab countries, at times paying the ultimate sacrifice for their patron. Similarly, these states are also acquiring the latest weapons technologies, which are increasingly automated in order to offset their lack of human capabilities. Since the Cold War, another factor, probably the most important one, has been motivating potential patrons to externalize the burden of warfare to surrogates. The East-West Divide brought with it the apocalyptical risk of nuclear war, as both super superpowers were eager to protect their ideological and geostrategic interests, yet not at all costs. In an effort to avoid direct military confrontation, both Washington and Moscow played a zero-sum game, trying to undermine the advance of each other on the global chessboard by relying on proxies. Proxies were supported to take the war to the ideological enemy so as to maintain a degree of plausible deniability. By creating a physical distance between strategic decision makers, the patrons, and the actions of an executive agent, the surrogate, the Soviet Union would support the Viet Cong directly fighting U.S. forces in South Vietnam in the 1960s and 70s, while the U.S. could support the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan a decade later. In a long list of conflicts during the Cold War, the two superpowers were not deploying their own forces, but supporting opposing sides of conflicts on the global periphery in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Again, strategic interests could be secured by allowing a substitute to bear the human and financial costs of war, whereas the superpower was even able to minimize the political costs vis-a-vis -vis an ever more critical global and domestic public. Deniability meant that wars could be fought globally, persistently, and off the public radar without risking the doomsday scenario of nuclear war. When the projected costs of total war in the nuclear age grew unbearable, surrogate warfare provided a viable alternative co to coercively advance strategic interests. Although a link between surrogate and patron could never be entirely denied, the consequences of such proxy interventions appeared to be always more manageable than a direct military confrontation. In the post-Cold War era, the need for plausible deniability was no longer about covering up traces between patron support and surrogate action vis-a-vis -vis the superpower on the other side of the Iron Curtain. 
In the information age, plausible deniability has given way to discretion in the way wars are being fought. Plausible deniability has not disappeared as the increasing resort to cyber operations demonstrate, yet discretion in the way wars are being fought has acquired an equal, if not more important, status. Instead of taking military action off the opponent's radar, today discretion is a motivating factor that emerges from the constant, global, public scrutiny. Surrogates provide the patron with the ability to conduct war with limited footprints, if any, and without any public ne negative publicity, usually connected to the use of violence in an era when military action is widely frowned upon. Iran's and Russia's use of surrogates in the Middle East can be explained by efforts to discreetly further or protect strategic interests without risking the negative consequences of direct military action. Despite the fact that the international public sphere condemned Russia's use of surrogates in the Ukraine and Syria, and Iran's support for non-Sudi militias in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen, both states have so far not risked military escalation on their own soil. While surrogates have killed and were killed, the two patrons retained a clear slate. So, in the 21st century, surrogate warfare has become an important vehicle to di indirectly intervene in conflicts overseas while avoiding both international and domestic public scrutiny, the latter being the factor that has most extensively di driven patrons to externalize the burden of warfare to surrogates. The need to remove military actions from society's checks and balances is the single most important driver and aspect of postmodern surrogate warfare in liberal and illiberal states. It is here that this mode of war is fundamentally different from surrogacy in antiquity, the Renaissance, and the Cold War era. The need for discretion derives from the altered geostrategic environment in which states operate. The socio-political context in which warfare exists today pressures the state to consider discrete options for military action. The reason is that war, or more precisely the absence of peace, has become a permanent state of affairs that requires a simmering commitment by some states to maintain their strategic, sometimes peripheral, interests. Large-scale deployments and major combat operations might not be the preferred option when publics at home consider the objectives to be secured as less than vital, such as is the case in so-called wars of choice. Never-ending, simmering wars without clearly defined objectives against intangible threats require discrete military options that surrogates can provide. And this is where the link between discretion, on the one hand, and urgency and costs, on the other, comes into play in motivating patrons to substitute or supplement the burden of war. The urgency of a crisis is the sum of a political leader's perception of the immediacy of a threat to vital interests and the potential humanitarian considerations. The former are linked to the more realist components of foreign policy, the latter to its altruistic components. In an era when the urgency of a crisis or conflict is a subjective public perception at home, states either have to invest in securitization at home or find discrete ways of dealing with the crisis. Urgency as a motivating factor relates to Beck's idea of the postmodern risk society when states feel the public pressure to deal with a menace they do not even know exists. When the perception of risk is more a function of emotional hysteria than facts-based rationality, the state has to plan against all eventualities, also against risks that are not just intangible, but might be entirely socially constructed, 
Indeed, when the state is held accountable by an immense public hunger for security, risk management is not a choice but a necessity as the political costs of omission are higher for the policymaker than the political costs of overreaction, most commonly in developed states. Yet, when military action is the least publicly acceptable option for risk management, more discrete options for coercion have to be found. The reason is that, as Andrew Mumford illustrates, quote, where state or group survival is not at stake, but the augmentation of interests can still be achieved, states and sub-state groups have historically proven to be conspicuous users of proxy methods as a means of securing particular conflict outcomes, end quote. Intangible threats in the era of global terrorism, mass migration, and local sectarian tensions do not create the public sense of urgency that would allow states to always use direct military action. Wars over ideology, ideology and Weltanschauung rank lower on the urgency scale than wars that appear to openly and concretely threaten the integrity and security of spoiled societies that fear that existential threats are matters of domestic public security, not matters of external threat. Hence, they do not allow for the large-scale deployment of uniformed citizens to complex operational theaters overseas and their exposure to the horrors of war, which societies, at least in the developed world, have come to regard as archaic remnants of history. As Chris Loveman observes, there are two trends that make warfare by surrogate more likely. Quote, Two broad trends, the technological and the moral political, act as structural impediments to the use of war by a state. Technological progress means increasing cost, risk, and destructiveness. Moral political progress refers to the growing domestic and international opposition in terms of opinion and legal structures that states wishing to engage in war will confront, end quote. That is to say, the international and domestic climate of accountability and scrutiny, even in authoritarian regimes, have exposed the state as the traditional principle of war to the demands of a war-fatigued public. The state in the 21st century is confronted with the dilemma of managing an always broader set of risks using discretion and deniability vis-a-vis society at home. The pervasive public and political aversion to casualties and war channeled and expressed through social media have raised the urgency threshold to levels unseen in history, making direct military actions hard to justify, particularly in a post-George W. Bush America, where the prevailing perception seems to be that trillions of dollars were wasted on military operations overseas that failed to generate tangible security for Americans. President Barack Obama's foreign policy was the product of widespread war and casualty aversion exacerbated by the Bush legacy, putting the United States' ability to win wars in doubt. The Obama administration consequently explored new means of deciding outcomes overseas that did not require massive military actions. As Obama stated bluntly in July 2015 in regard to conflict management in the Middle East, quote, Ultimately, it's not the job of the U.S. to solve every problem in the Middle East. The people in the Middle East are going to have to solve some of these problems themselves, end quote. Similarly, Obama's successor in the White House, President Trump, has built his foreign policy in the region around U.S. allies who he believes to have to bear an increased burden of conflict on their own behalf, as well as America's. Delegation to surrogates, direct and indirect, has become the integral part of the new American way of war, a way of war other Western states have long embraced in an effort to deal with problems or urgency. 
The operation against Muammar Gaddafi in Libya in 2011 was one of the first instances of the new American concept of leading from behind. By relying on allies in NATO and the GCC, Washington externalized the burden of war to those powers that arguably had a higher vested interest in the outcome of the war. Yet, because of the operational weakness of his allies, the U.S. had to reassume the leadership after a few days into the operation. The cost-benefit analysis of postmodern warfare is a discourse that requires policymakers to invent benefits and minimize costs. Surrogate warfare is about fulfilling strategic objectives at a minimal cost in blood and treasure, and thereby at minimal political cost to policymakers. Surrogate warfare offers the panacea for casualty and war aversion in a global context in which wars are permanent, threats and risks are globally dispersed, and engagement has to be persistent and discreet. It offers an economic alternative to more expensive standing armies and could provide the indispensable elements without risking American lives to the same degree as U.S. ground forces. Finally, the mediatization of war means that patrons engaging in military action overseas have to take into account public perceptions of local communities. The legitimacy of military actions on the ground is as much enhanced through information operations as by the tying in of local communities in the war effort. Local surrogates, who are part of the social fabric on the ground, are more likely to be perceived as legitimate actors than the patrons' own forces, with little or no connection to the socio-cultural environment. Particularly in coin operations, local surrogates can augment the counterinsurgency legitimacy in the eyes of local populations. The U.S. experience in Afghanistan and Iraq beginning in 2001 and 2006, respectively, shows how a small SOF contingent can deploy quickly to liaise with local tribes acting as force multipliers who fight not for foreign interests but often for communal interests on the ground. The reliance on the Northern Alliance during Operation Task Force Dagger to oust the Taliban regime in Kabul showed that a few SOF troops could achieve their extensive objectives while being almost invisible to the local population. The same was true during the Anbar Awakening in Iraq, where the U.S. forces co-opted Sunni tribal leaders in Anbar province to act as their surrogates against al-Qaeda. While the United States provided air cover and operational support through SOF, the main burden of war was carried by local tribal forces. Local communities were empowered to lead the war against extremists without the constant presence of foreign troops. The use of local surrogates to augment one's own legitimacy has become common practice in the 21st century, as France's reliance on local surrogates in the fight against jihadists during Operation Serval in Mali suggests. In coin operations, the support of the local community is key to operational success, something that the French already realized when trying to contain the Algerian insurgency after 1958. The reliance on the Harkis as the local surrogate force was a desperate attempt by the French colonial power to buy legitimacy vis-a-vis -vis local communities striving for self-determination. In an era of population-centric warfare, stabilization operations, and nation-building, the rapport between patron and local communities is critical to operational success. In stabilization operations, the intervener requires legitimacy in order to exercise authority, a legitimacy that can be undermined by large numbers of foreign troops perceived to be alien to the cause of local communities. 
indigenous surrogates can bring a degree of authenticity and legitimacy to the operation theater that even well-trained human terrain teams could not. Thus, T.E. Lawrence's maxim from his field manual, 27 Articles, holds for contemporary operations as well. Quote, Do not try to do too much with your own hands. Better the Arabs do it tolerably than you do it perfectly. It is their war, and you are here to help them, not to win it for them. End quote. The counterinsurgents of the 21st century operating against intangible and evasive enemies embedded in the civilian population have taken these lessons to heart. Conclusion Warfare by surrogate is the 21st century response to the changing geostrategic and operational environments of conflict. Increasing demands for security in an era when being secure has become an even more subjective assessment of feeling secure put pressure on socio-political authorities to provide this essential public good to the people they cater to. States have become managers of risks amid a security environment in which threats are intangible and risks socially constructed, often inaccurately and inadequately. The heightened awareness of the international community, the public at home, and local populations in the conflict zone have exposed any use of force to global public scrutiny. In a post-heroic era, where the use of violence is widely considered socially unacceptable, where war is a horrible remnant of the past, and where each casualty is front-page news, clashes of peripheral interests may no longer be resolved through mass bloodshed. This applies to non-liberal states as well, which amid the ubiquity of information, see themselves increasingly scrutinized by global and domestic public opinion alike. Here is where the nature of war as a socio-political phenomenon departs from the traditions of Clausewitz and others. Despite the fact that who uses violence against whom, for what reasons, using what means, has changed, essentially violence remains a component of war. Nonetheless, it is the socio-political foundation on which organized violence rests that changes. The neo-Trinitarian aspect of war, that is, the fact that alternative socio-political authorities to the state employ alternative means of force to the soldier to further their interests, is shaped by a clash of discourses over security and violence. Surrogate warfare is a new mode of neo-Trinitarian war, allowing the state to compel the enemy to do its will. In doing so, under the radar of the attention of the international community, domestic public opinion, and local populations. It is not the actual absence of bloodshed that makes warfare by surrogate appear to be the silver bullet for any patron wishing to coercively intervene in a conflict, but the apparent absence of bloodshed on the public's smartphone screens. The discretion with which patrons are able to employ violence indirectly through the surrogates creates a divide between the means of violence or the agent employing them on the one hand and the society paying for it on the other. Hence, while surrogate warfare is not a new mode of warfare in itself, it is the hybridity with which states, non-state actors, and technological platforms merge into new security assemblages. The externalization of warfare to human and technological surrogates is a reinvented ancient mode of war that is employed no longer by pre-modern states or empires, but by the Westphalian state. Here, 21st century surrogate warfare departs from historic precedents. Westphalian, liberal, and non-liberal states are able to maintain security as a socio-political good without relying on the citizen-soldier to provide for it. The question to be answered is whether surrogate warfare as a neo-Trinitarian mode of war is still active warfare in the classical sense of the word. 
Michael Howard, claims that the Clausewitzian definition of war as a act of violence to compel our enemy to do our will is as valid today as it was 200 years ago. Violence is what turns conflict into a war. Surrogate warfare fits this definition as well. Although it allows the patron to cancel the social contractarian bond between the people and the agents of force, the patron nonetheless indirectly manages coercive means, whether kinetic or not, to provide security, among other things, as a public good. From the human surrogate's point of view, the management of violence with or without the support of the patron remains an activity in which violence is being used against humans. But surrogate warfare is not just about the use of kinetic force, but also about a whole spectrum of means available to compel the enemy to alter his will. Getting into the minds of humans and changing their moral will to resist is as much the objective of warfare by surrogate as it is in conventional Trinitarian warfare scenarios, even when the surrogate is a technological platform. In times when major powers are hesitant to get drawn into conflicts on the periphery, surrogate warfare increases the readiness of major powers to employ surrogates to achieve their objectives, thereby making surrogate warfare a means to deter and coerce peers. In insurgency environments, surrogates can provide legitimacy with the local population through local Trinitarian bonds. Winning the hearts and minds of humans in a conflict zone is easier through the employment of armed agents who are embedded in local communities. The readiness to use violence through surrogates helps shaping clashes of interests coercively, and coercion is the only way the employment of surrogates becomes war.